and welcome to another episode of the podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild, a board member at Transit Matters. And I'm Jim Aloisi, co-host also on the board of Transit Matters. Today, as guests, uh, we have with us uh, David Bragdon, CEO of the Transit Center, and Neil Smith, and he's the, the executive director uh, and CEO of a, of a bus uh, company that operates in London, Santiago, and Australia. So, David, why don't you uh, let, the re- let the readers, let, let the listeners know um, uh, what Transit Center is all about and, and also why you folks are in town today. Sure. Transit Center is all about improving public transportation across the United States. We're a civic philanthropy, so we're technically a foundation, but we do a lot of advocacy and applied research ourselves, as well as helping other organizations at the grassroots around the country. We're here in in Massachusetts because we've recently completed a study about best practices in how to contract for operations, which is something that T does for commuter rail here. Uh, And I know that's been controversial here. So that's one of the reasons we're bringing in some people from out of town, including Neil from Australia, uh, but also from Sweden and Austin, Texas and Los Angeles, California, where they have been effective in contracting for transit services, where the, the transit agency pays a private operator to provide the services according to a contract. Well, we're glad you're in town. And it's it's interesting. Um, this is a topic. You know, Josh and I are both lawyers. So um, I, I, we cautioned one another earlier, let's not let the conversation go down a wonky path. Uh, but I suspect that those who, in the general public and many riders of the system don't really think a lot about procurement or contracting and that that's not as transparent perhaps nor should it be to the average rider, and yet it's critically important to the delivery of service and, and the quality of service. We in, in Metro Boston, um, MBTA system, have uh, periodically discussed heartily um, the, the, the virtues of performing work in-house or, or outsourcing it, privatizing it or otherwise. And as you point out, our commuter rail uh, operations are outsourced to a third party. So is the paratransit, the ride. And recently, uh, other uh, elements, components of the T service uh, have been outsourced or considered for being outsourced, including parking at commuter rail stations. Some of those have been more successful than others. And uh, we have a constant debate here about it. So I think it's good that we talk about best practices and what you all can tell us we can learn from places like Los Angeles or London, what, what might we learn from it and what could be applicable here? I think one of the first questions to ask is, I know at the top of your report, you mentioned that there's a difference between privatization and, um, I guess, outsourcing or contracting. Um, and could you explain a little bit about that so we kind of understand what we're saying when we say one term or the other? Well, so much of the debate in this country often sort of comes from the extremes or really sort of lampooning what it is we're talking about. You often have the word privatization coming from a right-wing perspective being all about how do you reduce, basically reduce the services and reduce uh, the, the, the taxes going to, to, to transit. And meantime, on the, on the left, some people kind of fear this as, well, it's the end of the world to do it. Um, in fact, contracting is nothing more than the government using private contractors to deliver a government service that remains a public service and has to be conducted in the public interest, and that it is not at all privatization. Privatization would be, well, if it could make a, make a go of it in the private sector, then they, then they would 
they would do that. We feel very strongly that the public interest has to maintain, the public interest has to be protected by the transit agency that's doing the contracting, writing a contract that's in the public interest and that does provide the type of transparency, provides, the, adheres to community standards in terms of, of uh, the ability of the workers to collectively organize and collectively bargain. Uh, public standards about safety. Uh, there's a whole range of things that can be built into a contract that if you put those in a contract, basically you're harnessing the private profit motive of the private operator, harnessing that to achieve public purposes that have to be enforced by the, by the public transit agency. Are the public purposes always about saving money or are they about sometimes about saving money or, and sometimes about improving service? Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think when people here, again, locally, think about outsourcing from the private, from the public sector, they think about that as a, as a mechanism for saving money. And they're not always thinking about it as a way to improve the quality of service delivery. But I suppose it's a little bit of both. Does it have to be both all, to, all the time? Well, I think it can be whatever, you know, the public agency that wants to pursue this technique can be. From our standpoint, it's not about reducing expenditures on transit. We're big fans of transit. We want to see more transit, and, and we want to see it provided at a higher quality. And in our mind, and in fact, in, just in reality, the, the, some of the places that are do contracting, such as Stockholm, Sweden, where it's entirely contract, is all about expanding and improving public transportation. It's, it's, and that, that's why we're kind of trying to change American attitudes toward this subject and, and make contracting a, a way of improving service rather than the sort of the automatic American response, which is that it, somehow it's about cutting costs or, or doing so at the, at the expense of the workforce or doing it in a way that shortchanges riders. And is the way to improve service, does it come down to how you allocate risk and, and how you provide in, incentives to the private sector so that the private sector, which has to have a profit motive, is looking at that profit motive in the context of an incentive as opposed to simply delivering the availability of service. Absolutely. I think that we've found that certainly incentives and penalties are a big part of it, and it's all about risk, and risk has a, has a price, and the uh, companies are good at, at figuring out. I think, I think Neil would be better at answering that question because he goes through this every time he does a contract in Australia or the UK or wherever. Yeah, and Neil, and I would say in London, um, you, you all operate a fair amount of bus service, am I correct, in, in London? Well, we... we we have 400 buses, but there's 9,000 buses in London. So yeah, right. we're, a, we're a small player in a very big market. But, the, but in London, what I liked about the report is that I think that the, the chapter heading was about, um, was about London getting past ideology and looking toward quality and having gone through several, several iterations of how to outsource gross to net to finally a, a, a framework that has proven successful which is based on incentives. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. The, London is a very high-intensity bus system, and the main focus in London is on uh, maintaining the frequency of buses. So that it, they, that's all they advertise. They don't have a timetable. They say a bus is every 10 minutes or every 8 minutes. So we have a very powerful incentive to keep that 
eight minutes or that 10 minutes exactly where it is. And then there are other, other areas built into the contract about cleanliness of buses, driver behaviour, uh, and those areas. But the real focus is on what the customer experiences when they catch a bus and what a customer wants when they go to a bus stop is a bus. And they want it when they think it's going to come. So the incentives in London are really, they all come back to the customer. They all look at, well, what does a customer expect out of a bus service? And then the incentives in the contract are lined up in delivering to the customer what they want. And our company is lined up that way because, as you mentioned before, there is a profit margin and we maximise our profit to the extent that we give excellent service to customers because it's a well-designed contract. Mm. And that's why this system works very well if the contract has been designed to put the incentives in line with the customer's needs. So I had read um, previously that, you know, I, I don't know if this is um, bus and rail um, contracting or outsourcing in the UK, that in, in the earlier iterations there had been a lot of issue with uh, all the carriers uh, flocking towards the most profitable lines and neglecting the others. Now, how did they get past that? And is that something that has successfully been worked through? <coughs> Sorry. Well, we're basically paid by mile. So the number of passengers on the bus is irrelevant. And in fact, a bus without passengers on is cheaper to operate than one with passengers on. So the idea that you would focus on a route because it had more passengers is 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 quite irrelevant. Um, we, on almost every street we run on in London, there's another contractor running on the same street, but those services are run cooperatively. People don't rush to get passengers because, again, it's not, it's not the essence of what our contract is. Our essence is to deliver a bus at that stop every eight minutes or every 12 minutes, and that's what we're contracted to do. I, wanna, I have to ex explore what you just said. Why is it more profitable to run an empty bus than a, than a bus with lower riders. It's lighter and it's cleaner. Lighter and cleaner. <laughs> and it stops less. <laughs> and how do you deal, so if you're stopping less and so there's no dwell time or very little dwell time, how do you manage, um, how do you manage your, your route? Your yeah. Well, it's, there are, every bus is constantly monitored in terms of its position and the, the monitoring software shows the distance between the buses. The driver knows the distance between the buses. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite frequent that a driver will slow down if he's catching up to the bus in front or even stop for 60 seconds just to make sure that that, that gap is maintained. This is really interesting stuff from our perspective because you're, basically what we're saying is the metric is not how many additional riders are on the bus, although people expect that if you provide it, they will come. The metric really is that bus arriving when it's supposed to arrive. But different contracts do different things. Mm -hmm. So we have contracts where there is a patronage incentive so that if patronage grows, there's an extra payment. Uh, I, I quite like that because I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the reason we're running buses is to carry passengers. So if we have an incentive lined up with that, I think I think that makes sense. By the way, so friendly advice while you're in town, when you're in, when you're in Boston and you say patronage incentive, people think it means you're going to hire their cousins. Uh, <laughs> so what you, patronage incentive, <laughs> translated into Bostonese is more, is more, more, more riders. More, more, more riders. Okay. Patronage is something unseen. Patronage is something okay. unseen. So what, one of the things I found fascinating was that um, in the report, and, and I think that Neil will probably, Neil will probably be 
go to uh, speak to this also from his perspective. Um, but to both of you, in the report it was saying that the agency may have to think of itself differently as it goes through um, and optimizes the way that it outsources. Um, and I'm, I guess this both in terms of um, what its purpose is, perhaps, um, reexamining that, because there will probably be things that you inherently assumed are what the agency exists to do, but if that's outsourced, how does that change? So how does the cha agency think about itself differently, operate differently, and, and how does the, the, um, the company that is, is being outsourced to, how does it also change the way it thinks depending on the contract? The big change is that in a contracting regime, the agency's focused on outputs. So it puts its focus on what it wants to see delivered. The decisions about how it's delivered are largely with the, the company. So it's that division of labour which is actually where I believe the savings are created. The agency has a simple focus then. They don't worry about what sort of tyre to buy or what their labour agreement is or those details. They just focus generally on what the customer needs or whatever the political imperative is. We just focus on delivery. So we aren't uh, subject to much political interference. We're not worried about anything except delivering what our contract says. And it's that simplicity of focus that makes the job of both parties work better. Because when government owns both sides of that, they get very confused between inputs and outputs. And particularly when you get political involvement, it becomes a very hard uh, egg to unscramble. But with the contracting regime, if it's done properly, people have very clearly defined roles, which is easier to work with and easier to be effective with and easier to measure. So people sometimes will ask this question, right, which is, well, what is it that the public sector cannot do that the private sector can do? And, and what we're saying here, this isn't really, this is not at all about unions, union workers, or, or, or fair wages for the job, that this is about something else, that, the, that if, it, if the contracting is done properly in terms of risk and incentives, the private sector can do a better job. Why, why is that? What are we saying to people? What's the message there? Well, you know, I spent 12 years in the, in the public sector in, in, in Portland, Oregon. So I, to, be, to be honest, the, there, there are some things that government has to do and does very well that involve uh, planning, for example, public interest, certainly, you know, policing, uh, corrections. I think there's there's such a strong element of, of, of public interest in those that there's properly the things that government delivers directly. I think on more consumer-facing type of activities where innovation is required, I have to be frank that government is not always the most innovative because the incentives aren't there to be innovative. And that when you have a situation where, where an agency, particularly in a consumer type product, where it is assured of perpetual existence, there becomes an inherent conservatism to it in terms of its procedures and what it's offering to, to customers. Whereas the forces of competition do create more dynamism in terms of, of what's being offered to the customer. And so in terms of, of private companies that have to rebid and have to be subjected to competitive pressure, you know, the, 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 the marketplace, it's a, it's a very strong tool uh, as long as it's deployed in the, in the service of, of the public. 
and that if you have uh, contracts that incent the provider to uh, adhere to frequency head, headways or intervals, I think was the British term used here, Australian term used here, um, that if, if somebody's, if management and perhaps the workforce, if they're, somehow their compensation is tied to that, you're more likely to get it. Uh, and that's easier to do that in the private sector. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was uh, perhaps controversial, um, at, le at least a lot of times in Boston when we talk about um, outsourcing, uh, was that your report said that uh, cities where transit, um, where transit contracting is the most effective tend to have strong labor protections. And when we do contracting here, it tends to fall along lines of labor versus those who want to save money. And it bec that becomes the issue um, as opposed to, because the assumption is that the labor protections will not be as strong and that is where the profit will be. Right, well that's why it, this isn't, we're not talking about privatization, which is with the limitations of the, of the private sector. If you just sort of turn it over to private op and, and say, well, here, have at it, without regard to sort of public interest and other considerations that go in the contract, well, then, then of course, their duty is to their shareholders. And, you know, within the bounds of that, they will, they will do, um, you know, what, what is best for their shareholders. But the public agency that is that has to hold this contract and has to maintain the protections for the public interest uh, is, is certainly more than entitled to include in their requirements whatever protections are appropriate for that community in terms of community mm -hmm. standards, uh, certainly in terms of the ability to, to organize and collectively bargain. Now that maybe it's collective bargaining now with a private company rather than directly with, with a government agency, but it, you know, it's still the basic protections of, and I think also just philosophically and or practically as, as well, if our goal is better transit service, there's there's never been a case where better transit service is the product of having an unhappy and undercompensated workforce. If you're going to provide good transit service, which is our goal, you can only do that if the employees who are dealing most directly with the customers are experienced and qualified and, and are fairly compensated. We're not interested in bidding on a contract if the bidding process is different companies undercutting labour costs. I wouldn't bid on a contract like that because it just becomes a race to the bottom and you end up with a business that's potentially unmanageable because of what you've done. So all the contracts we've been involved in recently, there's been very strong labour protection. So uh, often it'll be a rule that says no change to pay or conditions for two years. And then they're generally a unionised workforce and then you're negotiating with your own workforce. We won a large contract in Singapore two years ago on the basis of a wage increase because in our view drivers were paid too little and so there was a shortage of drivers. We didn't believe we could actually run the business with those wage levels. So we bid on a higher wage level and made the case to government that higher wages were necessary. And that was quite interesting because that was the first competitively bid contract in Singapore and it led to the wage rises of drivers rising right across the board because all the other companies then lifted their wages to match ours. So I think it's simplistic to say that contracting is necessarily anti-labour. It can be used that way and some governments have, there's no doubt about that, but I think that's 
that's a use of a tool rather than intrinsic to the tool itself, and the tool can be used for the opposite. It depends how the request for tender is written, what conditions the agency puts on the contract. Well, that's why I think um, even though for a lot of reasons, scale and others, London may not be, uh, you know, it's not a perfect analog to Boston, the, the lessons to be learned from the report, again, I was drawn and attracted to the notion of moving from something that began perhaps as an ideological effort and, and transitioned into something that is really working for the folks in, in, in that city. It seems to me also, as we're talking about the importance of contracting or procurement, that we might consider outsourcing the, 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 the effort to write smart contracts and procurements because um, I, I'd say candidly from my experience, uh, that's one of the weaknesses locally that we have. And no offense to anybody, but people do not think outside the box typically. Um, when we just um, resuscitated the massive $2 billion project to extend the Green Line here uh, from Boston into Somerville and Medford, one of the things that we did was we, we, we outsourced uh, a new procurement process and, and brought in new talent. And sometimes the government needs to step back and, 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 and realize that it, it's that very first step that, again, riders and others never, ever see that is critical to having the quality of service that you're documenting is taking place in Los Angeles and London and other places. It's no question that procurement is a skill, uh, and it's something that, that people need to have expertise in. It's, it's not like the days of, well, you know, let's ask for five bids and we'll open the envelope and then we'll just pick the one that's the cheapest. Mm -hmm. uh, that has been shown to not provide very good value for the taxpayer uh, in the long run or even in the short run. But that procurement, being a skill and being understanding what you're trying to accomplish is, is really important. And so what the marketplace is looking for in terms of incentives, what has worked out in other places that can be imported here. Right. And, and within the confines of a procurement, which has, you know, very important safeguards with regard to corruption, uh, you, you know, you, yes. you made reference to Massachusetts history with, with corruption, but that, uh, you know, such that contracts aren't being awarded to your brother-in-law. So there are strictures on communication, but even within that, there's a healthy type of communication in a pre-bid phase where potential vendors and the agencies can have some dialogue back and forth that can help to shape things before the procurement and, and you know, let uh, a thousand flowers bloom or whatever the... Uh, now I'm qu quoting Mao, so we're going from one, <laughs> one spectrum to another, political spectrum to the other. So if... If effective management, um, both of the procurement process and of the contractors, is inherently necessary um, for this to be to be successful, what do you see in agencies that are able to make that transition? There's something that's going to have to change in the operational and management levels of the agency to, in order to do that. Austin, Texas is a good example. Again, Austin's a progressive city uh, with high community standards in terms of labor. Not, not a very progressive state, but Austin's a progressive place. They made this transition. The cap Capital Metro is the, is the transit agency, and it, it's, it's taken them five or six years to get from a point where the agency was very focused on the inputs and doing the job day by day and responding to each and every uh, uh, carburetor that needs to be replaced or the tires need to be inflated uh, and, and, and 
doing all of those functions, the thousands of functions that go on every day, to, to a point where the staff knew enough, there was enough expertise on staff to know what the job is and what the requirements are, but not meddling in that management day-to-day -day and is allowing their contractors to actually go produce, and then measuring the outputs of those agencies, of, of those contractors. So in the case of Austin, some of the measurements are, uh, you know, distance between, how many miles does a bus go between breakdowns? So a measure of how frequent uh, your breakdowns are, which is in effect a measure of how well you're maintaining things. A uh, number of road calls that somebody has to come out and, and solve something. So when they start to see those indicators go down, not only do they penalize the contractor, they say, well, we're not, we're actually going to reduce our payment and they're entitled to reduce that under the contract. Um, you know, they may brainstorm if they say, wow, it seems like you're having a lot of problems with your carburetors. Um, if you want to brainstorm how to fix that, maybe there's somebody on the agency staff. But really what we're going to tell you is you got to fix these carburetors, right, and, 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 and get that done because otherwise you're going to continue incurring these, these penalties. So I think it's, it's an evolution of the agency to being a supervisor and, and somebody that can be really focused on those outcomes, many of which are, you know, the things that matter most to customers, and let the contractor do the day-to-day -day, um, with the outputs being measured. Neil, you probably have it from your Maybe a, operator standpoint. A good example is the bridge story, because there was a need uh, with one of the cities in Australia for demand-responsive services. They wanted to explore this. And bridge stopped running, and there was a sale process, and the sale process had to be completed within six weeks. So due diligence, contracts, closure within six weeks. Now, clearly impossible for a government agency <coughs> to do anything like that in six weeks, particularly in another country. So as a private sector company, we saw that bridge would be an asset to the services we could offer government. So... I was on a plane within 24 hours and we stayed here until we had signed contracts and we did it in six weeks. We've now taken that back and offered it to government and now it's being incorporated in uh, two contracts and improving the level of service. Now, if that transit system had been in government hands, that simply would not have happened. It would be impossible for a, a, a government agency to make a decision like that. And then the other point is, is once we bring it into that city, we can then spread that expertise across the seven cities we operate. And so seven transit agencies have now got the benefit of that expertise that's been purchased. So I think that's a, a good example of how innovation can come up from the private sector in a way that is just simply not possible for a government agency to do. No, that's a good example. Well, one issue, if we get into bidding a little bit, one of the issues we've had recently in attempted procurements is there just hasn't been responses to RFPs that the agency has put out, or there's only been one or two, and you know people just don't feel like they're really satisfied with both, or you have the best winner of two, uh, and and then that ends up not being great, and then when they rebid, you know, however many years later, five, ten, whatever, it's the same two. Um, how has that been dealt with in other markets with other agencies? Is there just more like in London? Is there just more bidders? I mean, you're also in the report. You you cite you know New Orleans and and LA also. Yeah, the, you know, the, there need to be enough bidders to make competition meaningful. If there's only two or three, um, you, you do have 
real problems. And regardless of what we hear out of, out of the White House, collusion can be a problem in our society. And certainly if you don't have enough competition, um, you, you don't get the innovation, you don't necessarily get the value. So as this develops more in this country, I think we would like to see more competition, more, more bidders on anything. London certainly is a very vibrant market, uh, but I think the agencies, Transport for London, the public agency, and the, their counterparts in Stockholm and elsewhere have said that having five or six viable bidders really is essential to making sure you're getting the best. I think some of that is it goes to what's the service. I mean, I know from my own personal experience how difficult it is to get qualified bidders to bid on operating a commuter rail system. That's not the easiest thing to do. Right. However, getting qualified bidders to, to bid on paratransit, a little bit different, you know, and I, I think bus is also, is also that way. I think on the public sector side, I would say that, you know, one of the first principles ought to be the public sector getting as much quality information before they begin the procurement process. That can happen through an RFI. It also can happen through due diligence. And I think we need to do a better job at both to collect enough information up front that enables us to draft the kinds of procurement that attracts more potential bidders. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's before the before the bid process. Right. Because you're right, you know, commuter rail is a sort of special. There are not a hundred companies that can come in and start doing that. But there are in this country, you know, there are five or six. Right. There are four or five, mm -hmm. certainly. So if only two are showing up, then there's something wrong with the process. Are you involved, uh, Neil, in sort of bus rapid transit anywhere in, in your, or, or, or is it more traditional bus service? Uh, we are involved in one in Cambridge in the UK, uh -huh. and we did operate for a number of years the Adelaide O'Barn, which is a 16-kilometre bus-on-a-track system. Okay. So we've, we've done that, but none of the cities we're in right now are doing that. Now, a big part of that would be that the municipality would need to make the streets um, capable of you providing the, the qualities of bus rapid transit. So is that something that you, like you wouldn't bid on that if the, if the conditions were not already in place? Well, uh, there's a risk that uh, if you bid on a proposed bus rapid transit and then the infrastructure is not built, <laughs> that your bid then becomes non-viable because the infrastructure is not there and there have been some rather famous cases of that around the world where people have lost a lot of money so we would be very cautious on bidding on on a process that involved infrastructure if we weren't confident that the government side was capable of delivering the infrastructure. One, one problem that we have in, in, in Greater Boston is unlike Los Angeles or London the city or the cities are not responsible for making decisions. It's the, it's a state-run and, and controlled entity, the MBTA, and so this the MBTA has to work closely with any number of cities and towns um, to talk about and enforce things like exclusive lanes and traffic signal priority, the kinds of things that you'd want to have in place as part of a r true rapid bus system. So we're at a disadvantage, I think, and nothing we can do about it unless the legislature wants to change how the governance structure of the T uh, works, but we're at a, I think we're at a disadvantage because I'm, I'm, I was gathering from reading the report that the places globally that are gonna provide the best examples of success are places where the city, the municipality, has more to say about both the 
transit delivery and the actual infrastructure situation. It's interesting in London because it, it has a structure similar to Boston in that the, the city of London is a tiny part of London mm -hmm. and then there are a whole range of boroughs yes. around it. But there is an overarching body called Transport for London mm -hmm. and it has the authority, uh, it, it controls the main roads. So the side roads are controlled locally but the main trunk roads are controlled by Transport for London and it has the authority to do bus lanes, it has the authority to do traffic light mm -hmm. uh, prioritisation. And I think that's actually essential. If you, it, it if, really you, yeah. if you disaggregate the authority to organise traffic around a city, you're, you're, you're begging for congestion because every time you cross a boundary, you're going to get different rules. Though Everett, Everett Massachusetts shows you cities can do things yes. even if they don't control the, the transit agency, they do control the streets in many cases, and Everett, there they went ahead and did a bus lane, and they've, they've expedited the commute for, for people who live in Everett. It's a great example. The Barr Foundation here in Boston is trying to, you know, induce more of that here around the region. I think yep. the, when you do start thinking about transit performance, which contracting sort of forces you to, to, to focus on things like punctuality, then, it's, then you have a contractor coming back to the government in whatever, it's a city or a, a, an agency, saying, well, if you want timeliness or if you're paying me by the hour, it, suddenly it's really in this, somebody's interest to expedite those vehicles. Sure. And you're, you're thinking about it in a way that probably hadn't been thought of before. There you go. Well, we've, we've branched into, I think, a whole other topic, um, which would be fun to explore, but we're probably out of time for today. I want to thank both of you, uh, um, Neil and David, for coming, um, for sharing the report, and for the additional time you'll be spending in Boston speaking to others. Good to meet you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. I am a passenger.